Hello and welcome to another story. A new series of stories and conversations brought to you in friendship by the Scottish International Storytelling Festival. I'm your host, Daniel Abercrombie, and across the next six episodes we'll be chatting with some wonderful storytellers, hearing their tales and exploring different areas of storytelling in Scotland and beyond. So settle down or speed on up to join us for another story. Hello again. We really hope you enjoyed last week's conversation with Peter Chand and Ruth Kirkpatrick. Today we're chatting with two storytellers who'd never actually met before, but are both doing interesting work in similar areas of storytelling, exploring stories of migration and sanctuary. Anna Conomos Wedlock is an award-winning storyteller, author and coach who has spent over 20 years performing internationally in festivals, museums, schools, castles, boats and beyond. Anna has a spellbinding collection of folk and real-life stories, myths, legends and songs from across the globe and we're delighted that she's joining us at the Scottish International Storytelling Festival this year, presenting her show The Promise, which tells the tale of two seven-year-old best friends, one Greek and one Turkish, who live on the outskirts of Smyrna in 1923 as war and destruction changes everything around them. Gauri Raji is a storyteller, educator and workshop facilitator who works with adolescents and adults from multilingual, multicultural and disadvantaged backgrounds. She works with different genres, folk tales, fairy tales, epics and myths, mainly from non-European regions, as well as autobiographical storytelling. She's especially interested in the concepts of witnessing in storytelling, translation, multilingualism and the embodied nature of creating stories. Gowrie is also performing at the Scottish International Storytelling Festival this year on the opening night, no less, with her show Tales of Exile and Sanctuary. Hi Gowrie, hi Anna. Thank you for joining us for this this chat today about your storytelling work um, and your upcoming shows in the Storytelling Festival. Maybe we could just start by asking you both to talk a little bit about those upcoming shows, which both explore these themes of migration and sanctuary. Gowrie, if we could come to you first. Thanks. Yeah, so um, I'm going to be bringing my show, The Tales of Exile and Sanctuary. It's one of my earlier pieces that I developed. At that time, I think it was 2015-16, I was working uh, with another storyteller, uh, Seth Townsend, at the detention centre for asylum seekers in Oxford. And we worked there on a project for about three years. Um, Some of the stories in this piece were either collected in the detention center during that time, or there were stories we told to the inmates at that time. And there are a few stories that carry the spirit of what it means to be an asylum seeker, as we learned from the people who had been detained at that center. So it's it's quite a raw piece, but it has stories from mainly sort of the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, um, and those were the nationalities that 
I predominantly came into touch with during our work there. Great, fantastic. Has the piece developed any since that original kind of bit of kind of story development? Has it has it changed much? Yeah, I think initially when the stories were gathered and when I had told them, they were very much about responding to the experiences of people whose stories I had heard, whose lives a glimpse of their lives I had experienced. I'm a migrant myself, and I've had kind of quite a journey through being a migrant in Europe and in the UK. Uh, so over the years, there are textures of those stories that kind of tell a story of both the outer worlds of other asylum seekers and migrants that I experienced, and also the kind of inner worlds and the questions that arise. So it's kind of, what are our inner lives as migrants? What are we negotiating? A couple of stories have kind of entered more recently, going through my own migration journey. So I think there's that element to it. Well, we're, we're delighted to be hosting these stories as part of the Storytelling Festival. Um, and, you know, yours is going to be our, our opening concert. So a fitting way to celebrate the theme of this year's festival, you know, the right to be human. And can't wait to, to hear these stories live on our stage. Yeah. And the stories are sort of woven into each other. And uh, what I'm trying to explore in this piece is, although we talk about asylum seekers and immigration issues in the current world, and there's something quite pressing about those, these experiences are not new to human existence. And folk tales have these experiences coded into them. Most Many folk tales talk about experiences of what it means to be someone who's seeking sanctuary. So I'm trying to explore current issues through these traditional tales. Thank you. Um, Anana, you're you're bringing your show, The Promise. Yes, that's right. We'd love to hear some more about that just now. Thanks. Yes, I'm passionate about this story. I absolutely love it. It's called The Promise. It's inspired by true stories. Uh, it is set in Zmana. And actually, it's quite topical because uh, this year, in fact, yesterday, marks the signing of the Treaty of Lausanne exactly 100 years ago. That was the treaty that decided on the exchange of populations between Greece and Turkey following the Greco-Turkish War. It's not going to be a political story, although, of course, there are the undertones of war and what's going on and all the political decisions that are being made by the adults. But the story is being told through the eyes of two seven-year-old girls, two friends, best friends, one Turkish Muslim, the other Greek Orthodox who have a, a very strong bond. And it's fascinating to hear about their love for their homeland, their love for one another, and how all of these changes are taking place around them. And yet that friendship, that bond kind of survives and overrides all the boundaries, all the disturbances, all the ideas and prejudices and so on, and survives the generations. It's incredibly moving. I still get very moved when I tell it. And um, it's going to be accompanied with music from Asia Minor as well. Um, it was originally a story that was part of a larger project called Twice a Stranger, which was about forced migrations of the 20th century. And it dealt with, you know, this sense of being a stranger, both in your homeland. So when you try to return and regain what you've lost and feeling a stranger in the new land. So never really belonging anywhere. And this whole idea of where do you come from? Where do you belong? Who are you? That that search for identity. And when it's told through the eyes of a child, it's extremely raw. 
It's very innocent and it's very impactful. Amazing. Yes. And when you say it's based on true stories, is that... um... Are the two girls are they made up characters that you've kind of you're expressing these stories through, or were you know, or did you find specific stories related to two young people there? Usually, with my stories um, that have to do with real events, and a lot of the stories I tell have to do with some form of displacement, because as you said, Gowrie, the the kind of experience of being displaced or or changing homelands is one that that I've known, and it really interests me it, it sort of fascinating how you feel this bond that's connecting you to so many places but you're not quite sure which one you really belong to fully and so you do a lot of research you you do everything from going to the place and kind of doing field work on the ground to to interviews listening to interviews compiling information and then telling the story through one character who yes might be a character that is a created one, but has all the elements of truth in it because you put all that that research into those th- that character into that person's voice. But by following one person's narrative, you get very involved as a listener. You you kind of bond with that person, and you I think you experience it more fully. Mm, fantastic, yeah, that's great. It's two really perfect shows for a festival this year, and. Um, and you know, I mentioned Gary's opening the, the festival and Nana you're performing in the final weekend of the festival with The Promise but I know you're going to be involved in other elements of the festival as well so we're delighted to have you both involved and um, really looking forward to hearing these stories told on our stages. Maybe next could we or could you maybe further reflect on your own journeys I know you've both mentioned that and your experiences of being storytellers in different countries and whether, you know, your approach um, to telling these types of stories has changed or, or adapted over the years. I'm fascinated to hear about your journey, Gary. I, um, lots of people, they hear me, they say, well, you know, you sound like you're, you know, you're a bit Australian or do you have some other element in your accent? My parents are Greeks from islands in Greece. Um, my grandparents migrated from Greece, moved to Australia. My parents were born in Australia. I was born in Canada in Vancouver because uh, they moved there in the early years of their marriage and then from there, we lived in Sydney, we lived in Thessalonica in the north of Greece um, before moving to England. But I think the great thing was that we had my grandmother with us, first generation from Sparta, my mother's mother, who carried that sense of home wherever we went. So I've always been fascinated with the idea of hospitality. It's something that's certainly in my culture, and I'm sure it's in yours as well, Gary, which actually etymologically means care of the stranger, the same in Greek, philoxenia, care of the stranger. And this idea that that hospitality is such an important concept, and it, it's so important in the way you become and in the way that the, the way you start to identify yourself with a place and with people. And my grandmother certainly carried that with her through her stories, through that I, I don't know that rural village uh, way she had, and also that that idea that we owe it to everyone to have an open home and an open mind. Then I started to explore my background, my stories, and then get really interested in. Um, stories of displacement generally. So I started doing lots of different projects, most of them having to do with Greece somehow. Um, so there was a story about the Anzacs on the island of Limnos before um, before the Gallipoli War and how the, the villagers interacted with the Allied soldiers, a story of the Jews of Thessalonica before they were expelled um, to Auschwitz. 
the story of the Battle of Crete and the resistance there and how the local um, the locals hid uh, the allies in caves and so on. So and then again, going, doing interviews, realizing that we're running out of time because the people that can tell us these stories are getting on and we, you know, we need to have these stories that are still in living memory. And then uh, from there, starting to work with stories you mentioned, Daniel, what are the challenges? Well, often the challenges are um, translating them, telling stories in different languages, telling stories in Greek. What's the impact of changing the language? How can you use maybe both languages in the storytelling experience? You know, I love coming out with Greek uh, in the middle of my story, even if I'm telling it in English, because it gives it an authenticity and you don't need to translate everything. I put a lot of music into it as well that's Greek, which I think, again, gives it another level. But yeah, there are there are uh, ways you need to adapt, as I'm sure, Gary, you've, uh, you've seen in your kind of journey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's sometimes the key to being a, a migrant is uh, the, the the capacity to adapt and uh, to hybridize in some way as well. But it's fascinating to hear about your journey, Anna. Mine isn't so wide and varied, I must say. I kind of came to the UK as a first-generation migrant when I was around 26 years old. So I already had had a whole life in India before that. And that was literally my first journey to any country outside of the one that I was born in. India itself is such a melange of different cultures and different faiths that in some way, I think I always grew up with this idea that I never quite fitted in, um, uh, just in terms of my family background and where my parents came from. And at home, we didn't speak. Uh, we spoke a mixture of three languages, my father's language, my mother's language, and English. And English was the link language. Uh, but alongside that, I had friends who came from other parts of India. So I grew up with almost about five languages on the go at one time. And we all know that language also shifts the way in which we experience the world. So there's nothing that I could say was absolutely indigenous to my being. I grew up in borderlands. Gujarat, where my mother and father settled, is on the border of Pakistan and India. The culture there is identifiable across the Middle East. All my life, there has been this element of where do I belong and what does belonging really mean? When I first came to the UK, I was so surprised that everything was so familiar. From the railway signages, to the language, to the architecture of the buildings, to the way people did things, because of course we were colonized and you know I studied in an English language school. So I grew up with British histories all around me. My bedtime stories that my father told me were of the British kings and queens. So for me, the journey to the UK has been really a journey of defamiliarizing. The longer I stay in the UK, the more its nuances reveal themselves to me, the more it becomes a place that demands listening, that demands, you know, reaching out to rather than taking for granted. And this is what I'm really interested in 
uh, when I speak about migration, about exile, about seeking sanctuary, migration experiences are markedly different depending on who you are as a migrant, whether you're a second generation migrant, you will have a different approach to who you are as a migrant. If you come here as an adult, your experience of migration will be different. You come here as a child, you will be looking at something else. So for me coming as a migrant, and I'm the only one in my family who lives in this country, I have the freedom to create the contours of my life in a way that in India would be, you know, kind of, there would be elements of culture or familiarity that would be pressing down on the way that life is shaped. My interest in looking at the right to be human, what is this journey that all of us are making where we are lost and we are seeking sanctuary? As a migration experience, as an experience of exile, as an experience of seeking sanctuary, between those who have changed countries or geographical locations and those who might have, you know, kind of been born and brought up and live in the place they were born in, they feel there is an element of being exiled in some way in all of us that we carry. And I'm really interested in those overlaps. Uh, and the question I'm asking in this piece is, what is it that really, truly makes us breathe as human beings in a place? Uh, because what we might think is sanctuary, what we might think is hospitality, might be a double-edged sword itself. And we all know through, you know, the current British immigration policies, those who come seeking a sanctuary may be banished off onto barges and boats and put into detention centers, comes with conditions. So what is it that, you know, truly makes us feel we can grow as humans in a place? That's 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 great. Thank you. Thank you both for being so open there with your, your experiences. And it's really, really interesting to hear how much, you know, you have in common there as well. Okay, this is a storytelling podcast. Shall we have a story? Anna, I think let, let's come to you and, and let's have a short story from you. That'd be really great. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to share a story with you. One that comes to mind now is uh, one that touches on the theme we've just spoken about. So it starts with a king who has a quest. He has a problem and he gathers all the wise men in the land and he calls them in front of him and he says, come on, you wise men, you have all the world's wisdom in the palms of your hands. Can you solve this this riddle, this query I have, tell me what is the sweetest sound, the sweetest melody in all the world? And of course, they have lots of ideas and they say, oh, of course, the sweetest sound is, is a musical instrument. It's the sound of the violin, you know, the strings being played or the harp or percussion being played. No, no, someone else said, of course, it is the sound of laughter and joy that must certainly be the sweetest sound in all the world no someone else said you haven't mentioned song that is the sweetest sound it gives you life it fills you with the rhythm it makes your heart beat faster no someone else said what about the voice of a loved one surely that is the sweetest sound someone else said no what about the voice the sound of applause and appreciation, we all need that. The king listened to all these ideas and, of course, he was very inspired. And one minute he felt himself being pulled in one direction, then in another. But 
he just hadn't quite found the answer he was looking for. One of them, wise men, he hadn't replied yet. And um, and so the king turned to him. He said, do you not have anything to say? He said, well, I just want to think about it. So I'd like to invite you all over to my house in a week's time and I'll maybe have the answer then. Well, the king always loved an invitation. And so a week later, they all presented themselves to the wise man's house. They sat themselves down on silk cushions and they waited. And uh, the wise man produced all these wonderful musicians who played um, people who came and sang, dancers with the rhythm of their feet, set your heart racing. There was applause. There was laughter. There were stories even. But, you know, as time passed, there was a bit of a rumble of discontent among the guests, you know, and it wasn't so much what they were saying. It was more what you could hear coming from their bellies. It's just this this constant kind of groan and rumble. And, you know, even the king was starting to get impatient and he was quite good at self-control, but he was, you know, starting to get fidgety and thinking, well, I'm going to make my way back now. When all of a sudden, I've even got a prop here, not that you can uh, see it, everyone who's listening, but I've got a lovely big spoon. And all of a sudden, the wise uh, man, he took his cauldron, he started to hit the cauldron with his spoon. And there was, this is a bit of a knock, but it was more like a clink. And you know what? The moment that clinking was heard, there was just this sudden, oh, this just relief resounding. And uh, this wonderful feeling of elation. And everyone's mood changed dramatically. Everyone had more than enough time suddenly. And everyone became friendlier and happier and more open as the clinking continued and the food was distributed. And then when the king ate his first mouthful of stew, he said, ah, yes, the clinking of dishes in the ears of the hungry. That must be the sweetest sound in all the world. Wow. Thank you. I chose that story uh, because we were talking about hospitality. And for us, I don't know, it's probably the case for you as well, Gauri, that the concept of hospitality, of, of welcoming someone and and treating them as an equal and showing that love comes with the giving of food, um, an essential uh, need and um, the best way you can show that generosity. There's a lot of moments in various stories of mine where the food element plays a deeper part in the, the forging of bonds and relationship and the overcoming of animosity. The perfect story. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful story and you're quite right that food seems to kind of, it's so intimate food, isn't it? And also it kind of welcomes people into your world so quickly. Yes, and it's it's a definitely the taste of a, of a homeland. You know, we can all think of the food that reminds us of of home and where we've come from, the hands that prepared it, the process it goes through, and that those very unique flavors. And offering that is is opening up that whole lifetime experience and those treasured memories to somebody else and inviting them into that. Mm. Do you know, I, so I, I'm sat now in the Scottish Storytelling Centre in Edinburgh, and it was designed. You know, as the world's first purpose-built centre for storytelling, it was designed with the cafe at the front so that when you come into the building, you're met with a space where you can be welcomed and where you can sit down and you can relax and you can have some food and some drinks. And from there, you can explore the rest of what we have to offer. And that's in the Cayley tradition. I think a lot of visitors think of a Cayley as a dance experience, but we offer storytelling, music, dancing and songs and food. It's, you're, you're totally right. It's, it's such an important part of that welcome. 
Um, should we have another story? I really enjoyed hearing that. Um, Gary, would you like to share something? Okay, I'll go with a story that um, weirdly does seem to resonate with your story, Anna. So I think food really does have something at the heart of it. So this is a story that comes from Afghanistan. And uh, it's a story of the times when there were these great battles led by great sultan. His name was Timur Lang, or as you know him here as Tamerlane in English. So Timur Lang had waged these wars. He was a great king. And for years and years, people enrolled into his army and, you know, went on these glorious conquests. But as it happens with everyone, the soldiers grow weary and they want to go back home. And this happened with three soldiers. They were from the same village and they had fought in those battles of Timur Lang for most of their adult lives. And now one of them thought, it's time to go back home. And he would mutter this in his dreams, in his sleep. And the other two listened. And soon all three of them found their feet headed not towards the battle, but towards home. They left the armies and started the long march back home. And if any of you know anything about Afghanistan, which I'm sure you do, it's a mountainous terrain. There's a lot of mountains to cross over, and it takes a while. So when night fell, they were still in the middle of the high mountains, and it's pretty dangerous. Two of them went to sleep, and the third one, well, he lit the fire, and he decided to stay awake and watch over the other two. Now, sometime in the darkest, blackest part of the night, there was a little rustling around the edges of their camp. And the man, he took his mashal, his little fire on branch, and he looked. There was an old, old man. Oh, he had a beard that was like one of those white froths on the streams, you know, as they gurgle. And he had a twinkle in his eye. And he looked and he said, hey, young man, where are you headed off to? The young soldier, he told him about how he was headed home. Well, it's a long journey to your village. Here, You'll need this, but be careful. Tell no one where you got it from or what the secret of it is. And when the man opened, the soldier opened the package, he saw it was a carpet. It was a beautiful carpet. And he thought, oh, my God, I can fly home now. No, 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 it's not a magic. It's not that kind of magic. If you shake the carpet and think of what riches you want, this carpet will give it to you. Soldier was happy. The next morning, he told his other two friends, for the three of them were bound in soul and spirit. And they each thought of what they wanted, rubies, gold, diamonds, wealth. But sure enough, when they shook the carpet, there was a castle in front of them filled with gold and rubies and servants. And they forgot about going back to their village. They stayed there. For a long time, their fame spread far and wide, and soon they were invited by the king of a neighboring castle. He had a young daughter. She observed something when these three noblemen came for dinner. They seemed to be noblemen, but their habits were more, shall we say, peasant-like. 
grabbed at their food and something didn't quite stick. So she got talking to one of them who had drunk a little bit too much. And soon she realized how they had come by their wealth. And that night, she found a carpet that was identical to their magic carpet and she exchanged it. So the next day, when the guests returned back to their castle and the soldiers, they needed to pay their servants and they shook the carpet, of course, nothing. They realized they'd been tricked. Well, they lost what was there to do. And one of them said, I'm going to fight the king. I'm going to get back our magic carpet. So the three of them rode out to the neighboring castle. And just before they reached, they found the old man with the beard that was like froth on the streams, gurgling streams with a twinkle in his eye. And he said, my lads, you're going to need this. It's a magic trumpet. Blow on it and you will get the armies you desire of Timur Langs, no less braver. So when they got to the castle, they blew on the trumpet. The whole armies were behind them. And now the king in the castle trembled. But his daughter, she said, I know these fellows. Don't worry. I'll get you what magic they have. And that night she stole into their camp. And when everyone was asleep, she spied this strange looking horn that couldn't belong to any earthly being. And she took it back to the castle. And the next day, when they, the three soldiers awoke, their, souls, um, their armies were not on their side. They were in the castle. So now they had no wealth. They had no strength and no army. They had nothing. And now they began to think of, you know, the original reason they had left their cushy jobs. They began to walk back home. It was a while. It took them a while. But just as they came to the edge of home, their village, the old man with the white froth stream-like beard and the twinkle in his eye appeared. And he said, well, my sons, you seem to have learned your lesson. It doesn't seem like you were seeking wealth. It doesn't seem like you were seeking strength. You seem to be seeking something far, far different. Here, here's my gift for you. And this no one can take from you. And he gave them a pouch. And he said, think of what might fill your bellies when you make your wish. And this sack will grant it to you. And he couldn't have given them a better gift because when they went back home, the entire village came out to receive them there parents, their wives, their children now grown up, their children's children, and all of them were starving because the land which had lost its young men was now reeked by famine. There was no one to work the fields. And the young men, they took out that magic pouch and they began to think of all that would feed their bellies and the bellies of their loved ones and their community. And that village never, ever starved again. Thank you, Gary. Wonderful. Two two fantastic stories there. Thank you both for sharing. We'd just maybe like to come back to something we discussed earlier on in our conversation. Um, and that was just about how we tell or collect the stories of other people's experiences. Maybe you could just both briefly touch on that. Because um, I presume it's something you have to, to approach quite carefully, you know, how you how you collect these stories um, and then how you how you share them. Yes, it's interesting, and it, you're right. There, there is a care and a timing that's involved. So, for example, sometimes when I'm going to go somewhere and interview and kind of glean information, uh, it's it's all very spontaneous. Uh, for the Battle of Crete story, I went to Crete and I went to some of the mountainous villages where I knew that there was still 
um, elders who had fought in the Battle of Crete, families that adhered to Allied soldiers. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know um, what I was coming to ask about. There's a natural openness and um, hospitality in those places. So on that level, it's it's easy and also speaking the language. But then there's a timing element to it. People aren't always ready to open their hearts, especially when the subject matter might be very poignant, very personal. So you have to time it. You might make an initial introduction and sort of meet people. But you also have to be ready for anything because sometimes it might all just come out then and there under the jasmine tree with a cup of Greek coffee and some Turkish delight, and then it's all there. And you have to be completely prepared, and you can't be going, oh, wait, I just need to get my notes. No interruptions, you know, because then you just break that flow. So there's often been times I've just had to, well, thankfully, I've had my husband with me lots of the time who's very prepared for things like that, but just memorizing, just looking, absorbing everything in the moment, and then coming back maybe for any top-up questions, but just being totally immersed in that moment. Natural storytellers as they are, you are completely swept up in this energy of a past that seems so real right now and the incredible heroism of these people that, you know, that don't really see that. They don't see that it was anything heroic. It was part of the fabric of their being to do what they did. It's very moving. You feel very bonded with the people. Then you feel like that you kind of need to, you need to keep that bond alive. So I've, I've stayed in touch with everyone. Of course, many people have passed away now. And certainly the Asia Minor refugees, you know, I, I wasn't, yeah, old enough to kind of have an, have time with Asia Minor refugees because that was a hundred years ago. But with their descendants, and also hearing interviews that they made in their lifetime, you know, that that were recorded and so on. But from a very young girl, I was listening to stories, even even to sort of stories before I became a professional storyteller and recording them. So that process of kind of recording and training your mind to retain information is has been one of a learning process, gaining that trust, um, being being happy with, you know, having massive expectations, but being happy with sometimes realizing that the best thing you're going to get is actually a very different one from what you've what you've imagined in your mind. And then the the magic is when you go back and you start compiling it all and you see all these different ingredients coming together and inspiring the content that's really fascinating and then inviting your interview interviewees back to watch their stories being told is really special and seeing them being so moved by that story yeah super and and Gody? yeah i mean a lot of it is what anna's already mentioned i'd just like to mention one added element to that is there are times when stories are too hard to be told, they're too difficult to recount, and there are places that people don't always want to go back to. Collecting stories is also being open and listening to really what the teller is trying to tell you and not so much just what they tell you. And there have been times where both when I'm collecting ancestral stories, stories from my own family, as well as working with different groups, they would much rather talk about something, not directly, but through a story. So you kind of, especially when we were working in this detention center, it was very clear there were lots of things that couldn't be talked about because 
um, the guards were present in the room where we used to have the storytelling sessions, which was just not a great scenario for a storytelling ethos. And so traditional stories, rather than talking about this happened to me, talking about, oh, I have a story for you, became a way of communicating what was really going on with you. And so I think being open to that, receiving the story as a gift, sometimes, most often when I've found myself in situations where I will ask people, so, you know, what's the story around this or what happened? The first thing they will say is, as Anna said, it's just life for them. Oh, nothing very much happened. There is no story. We we are not storytellers. We don't know stories. And then you kind of ask them, but do you know any stories around it? And invariably someone does, or they know half a fragment of a story. And then when you come back with all those fragments, they are speaking to each other in any way. Case. So yeah, I think the collecting of stories early on when I started on my storytelling work, I used to think, oh, I'm going to get a whole story. And it rarely happens that I get a whole story. Someone recounts a whole story. Someone recounts a fragment and then someone else substantiates it by something else, something else, and that creates a whole story. So I find that really fascinating. Super. Yeah, that really appreciate your responses there. I think it's, it's really interesting to hear. And we've had a, a really lovely conversation. And, and Gauri and Anna, I'd love to thank you so much Um both for your time and your your great expertise, it's really interesting to hear about your journeys. We're we're asking all our guests in this podcast series to finish up by sharing a short reflection on your favorite or most memorable storytelling experience. And I'd imagine there's plenty to choose from from your experiences. But um, yeah, Gary, is there something something special that that, that comes to mind um, you'd love to share? Yeah, I straight off the bat have one favorite storytelling experience, which actually got me into storytelling. And I'll never forget it. And it was a story of the Scottish migration to Canada that I heard a storyteller at the Beyond the Border Festival years ago. I think it must have been 10, 12 years ago. And I remember this man coming into the great hall in that venue, St. Donat's, I think it was. And he was wearing jeans and a check t-shirt and he came onto stage. There was nothing, just him on a bench. And he sat and he actually closed his eyes and he told the whole story. And by the end of that story, he had a really thick accent. I couldn't understand every word of what he was saying. But by the end of that story, I was weeping. For me, that was like that moment I thought, that's the kind of storyteller I want to be. Um, no kind of movement. There was no kind of accoutrements. It was just the story. But it was so, ah, uh, he took us to that place. I will never forget that. Lovely. Amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, Anana, something that comes to mind. It, it It is a tough one, isn't it, Daniel? Because, you know, if you think back on all the incredible stories you've heard from you know, from the stories that my grandmother used to tell me, which made every day a journey and a treat, you know, and kind of every day was a um, an adventure because we'd go on these journeys with her. And she was great at her Greek myths, you know. I, I think her favourite was probably Theseus and the Minotaur. And I just remember thinking, it's so awful that he forgot to change. 
um, the you know the the sales and why did he why did he not change them from black to white and then his father died and and now that's why it's called the Aegean you know and that that sense of oh my goodness it can't be surely I can reverse it surely I can retell the story differently you know um, to again professional storytellers at Beyond the Board I remember a Scottish storyteller there he just like you said thick accent took you somewhere didn't move just said it you know and he was hilarious and he was very moving as well um, to you know again those intimate moments I really love those intimate storytelling experiences and then the really vast ones like the first time I told the promise at the Athens Conservatoire I was there telling stories with many others and it was a daunting experience, especially when you're the youngest, you've never done it to thousands of people at a time before. You feel like it's the story of this one seven-year-old girl. How am I going to capture the thousands in the darkness here? I can't even see them. And yet letting the story speak for itself and letting that little girl's truths and experiences just carry carry you and then you learning from that, you realizing that actually uh, storytelling is about us us all going on this journey together. It's not a, I don't have to take so much responsibility. If I do, I actually, I build that wall and I take away from that magic. Um, Absolutely. So it's a really good question, Daniel, and you've got me thinking. Great. Well, that was a fantastic answer. And I think you're, you're both spot on. It's about connection, you know, and it's about being able to share as performers, but also as audiences together. And I think they're both great examples and we're just really excited to to see you in, in, in person in October and to see your performances and to have you um, around the festival um, in, in October. So thank you so much for your time today, Gauri Raji and Anna Konimos Wedlock. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please tell your friends, like and subscribe and maybe even write us a wee story review of your own. It can really help others to find these stories. Next week, we'll be joined by two of the UK's leading young storytellers, Ailsa Dixon and Fionn Phillips, who will be telling us all about their journeys so far and what the future holds for storytelling. But that's another story for now. This episode of Another Story was co-produced by Daniel Abercrombie, Anne-Marie Frumke and Helena Rafai. Edited by Helena Rafai and curated by the Scottish International Storytelling Festival, based at the Scottish Storytelling Centre in Edinburgh. You can find out more about the festival, which runs each October, at sisf.org.uk. The music featured in this episode was the track Bouncing by Mary Campbell and David Gray. <laughs>